0: Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to uh, teach his class, write his dissertation, raise a kid, and eventually, maybe, possibly, to get a job. And this is the fourth episode in our ongoing series that follows my class on work and play in the Industrial Revolution. If you're interested in the general subject, go back to episode one and you can hear me blabbing all about, uh, you know, The earlier stuff Uh, today, we're going to be talking about one aspect of work in the Industrial Revolution that, that we kind of ignore and I'm, you know, calling it other forms of work. So when we think about the Industrial Revolution, what we usually think about is the factory, um, that image of the big factory making cotton textiles in some hellish industrial city, blowing up black smoke into the air. Uh, people working there like are tired and they work in a you know, giant room. There are children and women and men all working together. That is our image of the Industrial Revolution. Machines take over part of the labor for people, and it leads to a new concept of industrial organization where individual workers no longer have power or autonomy. That is our image. And that's true. That is a a new form of labor that is really, really uh, uh, influential on what that time period was like. But the crucial thing about the Industrial Revolution was that this form of factory labor only happened in a few industries that really overrepresent our understanding of the time. We usually only think of the cotton spinning mills, but that was only a tiny portion of the work that people actually did. So this episode, I'm going to be talking about two different ways that people worked that were really important for our our understanding of the Industrial Revolution that kind of get left out of this story of of cotton factories. The first is handicraft labor. That's people working with hand tools, uh, often in muscular uh, ways, like using a lot of effort, sweating over making a wheel. And the second is uh, not sweating at all. It's professional work, what we might call as white-collar work, working over papers and offices, uh, educated people working on their own, doing some sort of highly educated skill. Both of these forms of labor really flourished over the Industrial Revolution, and I think both of them really lay a map for how we work today. We're going to start with handicraft labor. We have a timeline of how the Industrial Revolution affected handicraft labor. It is that there was once this, this, this situation in which skilled craftsmen could on their own produce uh, goods for the market and get a decent wage for it. And then all of a sudden there was a wave of gadgets that changed everything. Usually, when we tell the story focused on cotton spinning, the key point in time here is the 1820s. We Before the 1820s, we have a group of, of very skilled laborers, uh, some of them working on hand looms, who make a very you know, particular kind of good, and then all at once you have an invention, uh, the power loom, um, that puts everybody out of work. But what we should really think about is that beginning in the 1820s, there was a new kind of process that we're still kind of living through, a process by which particular Aspects of skilled work would be mechanized by new technology, and these new technology might produce different kinds of goods—goods goods that might be better or worse in certain ways than the goods produced by old technologies. And these technologies didn't just, you know, swa, you know, g- flood over uh, 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 the factories of, of, of England. No, they were always, uh, uh, in some ways, uh, a political process. People would resist the new inventions coming in to their uh, uh, places of work, or else they would welcome them for particular reasons. So, you know, just to talk about the quality of these goods, um, you know, we think usually of mass-produced factory goods as as shoddy, as having, you know, a, a, a worse quality, and in part this is true. Like, the me- mechanized ways of weaving and, and sewing often produced goods that were crummier than, than the alternative. For example, with lace. There was a lace-making machine in the 19th century, but it produced really crummy lace. If you wanted good, high-quality lace, you had to get it hand-made. But in other situations, the mass-produced factory materials were in some ways better. And there was a particular kind of quality that was associated with some of these goods. Uh, Maxine Berg talks about it, uh, and I have named it in my own head, like, the Industrial Revolution Cool. The big... Uh, uh, sector here is pottery. There were new forms of, of of pottery being made, like by people like Josiah Wedgwood, that were done in you know somewhat factory conditions, although not with machines and they were popular not just because they were more regular but because they were advertised as a particular kind of, of thing they were they were new they were rational they, with Josiah Wedgwood's potteries they looked towards a a uh, they looked backwards rather uh, to a, a, a classical Rome that that was reasonable and 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 polished and 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 I think cool is really the right word it's a particular kind of cool although looking at a, a a piece of China from the 18th century you don't think of it as cool but this exactitude cleanliness regularity was a kind of cool that people desired so let's talk about the other big uh 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 uh, trend here, which is resistance. Um, we, you know, if you if you take a, a class in the Industrial Revolution, you might read about resistance to machines. You you hear of people like the Luddites who would go around and and smash machines and say that they were, you know, uh, uh, operating under the instructions of a guy named Ludd, hence the name machine breaking. Um, but you really, it seems like machine breaking really you know, tip. you know, uh, declines after the 1830s. But this is not true. There were strikes in industries over and over again as mechanization came into them. Uh, Resistance even up to 1895. In 1895, there was still machine breaking going on in England, and there were still industries, uh, craft industries, that resisted the introduction of labor-saving devices. I think in 1895, there was a huge boot-and-shoe operative strike. So why is this important? Like, this seems we're really in the weeds here. Well, it's important because I think that, that this is a story that doesn't end. This part of the Industrial Revolution is not, you know, history. It's, it's present. It is a process that continues again and again and again. So when we think about the current uh, industrial organization of America, for example, the big story is automation taking place jobs. We hear about it over and over again, even if it might not be entirely accurate. And it seems to us that this is a, a novel thing the, the robots are coming to take our jobs. But in fact, it's been the story since the 1820s. Robots have been taking people's jobs pretty much consistently for, you know, 200 years. And we don't, it's not that we don't know what to do when that happens. We have a, 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 a toolkit now for how to resist that. Some people strike some people break machines some people just become alcoholics and die but but it's 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 something that we've dealt with before and thinking of it as 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 something completely novel as, as politicians like Andrew Yang do as something that requires completely new solutions i think is in some ways missing the point the problem the political problem, a political problem of the modern world, is what to do with the fact that the way that people work changes faster than people change. You can be a person who has a secure job that, that becomes your identity, that becomes important to you, which you believe and expect to be able to give you a life of a particular kind of standard of living. And then that changes. That changes suddenly and dramatically. It's better for everybody in general that it changes because you get, say, cheaper boots and shoes, but it's worse for you. What do we do about that? What do we do for the people who are left behind as these new technologies come? In Britain, there there was an answer to it. It was the labor movement and the welfare state and this 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 whole big social democratic you know blob. But to characterize the current moment of automation as 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 either, you know, completely novel or else a return to a particularly disruptive time that we haven't seen in, in a couple generations is just wrong. This has been happening over and over and over again. This is the story of the modern world. Let's talk in more detail about some of these handicraft industries. Uh, I'm getting most of this information from a weird and incredibly detailed article uh, by Raphael Samuel um, about uh, uh, handicraft labor and and steam power. I'll, I'll put it on the website it's if you if you like this sort of stuff, you will absolutely love reading this article. It's it's like sixty dense pages of the different ways that soap makers made soap in in in, in the early nineteenth century. But but I'm only going to highlight a couple of things here. So you know when we think of the Industrial Revolution, one of the things that we think about isn't just cotton factories. It is the Uh, gigantic machines that worked those cotton factories. And the thing is, is that those great engineering feats, those great engineering feats of the 19th century were usually the product of hand labor. The steam engines, the locomotives, the boilers, they were all made by hand by skilled people to exacting specifications. Uh, In 1852, for example, a single locomotive contained over 5,000 parts, and most of these, from the screws to the boilers, were made by Hand and needed to be made really, really precisely. You know, a steam engine in a factory was not some mass-produced thing. It was it was produced for that particular factory, and the engineers had relationships with these particular machines. They they knew how they worked in in a, in a really really intimate way, and they had their quirks. They would only work in certain ways. They would they would all be unique. This was the 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 the, the, the beating heart of the industrial revolution. Might have been a machine, but it was not. Not itself machine made. Another thing to uh, keep in mind was that this handicraft work, even when it was not making gigantic engineering feats, was high often highly, highly skilled. So let's take a, a really uh, uh, unremarkable job. So to uh, smooth clay, for pottery. Um, Often, there was a job where a person would go into the clay field and walk over it barefoot um, and and kind of massage it with their toes. Um, This would be done sometimes by men, sometimes by children, and sometimes by horses. Uh, Here is a description of this, I think from, from 1914. When the materials are to be mixed by treading, They're spread out on a concrete floor and are sprinkled with water. The mass is turned over repeatedly with spades, and, when it becomes too pasty to be worked in this way, it is again spread out and it is trodden by men with bare feet, who squeeze the clay between their toes and so mix it thoroughly. Each portion of the clay has to be squeezed between the toes, compressed, and then pressed on to the previously worked paste. The treader stands in the middle and, working his toes, goes over the whole surface of the clay in a spiral direction, always working towards the edge. Having reached the edge, he turns around and walks the opposite direction till he arrives at the starting point. Some treaders prefer to walk in straight lines instead of in a spiral direction. The trodden mass was then made into balls of 40 to 45 pounds weight and is afterwards beaten into a dense mass. In some works, it is pugged after being trodden. Now, that sounds really particular, but it gets even more detailed. Uh, elsewhere in, in this article by Raphael Samuel, he talks about how some of these puggers who walked on the clay with their bare feet gained such a sensitivity that they could feel with their feet a single pebble in the, play, in the clay. That, that is skilled labor. That takes effort um, to do and it doesn't just take skill and effort oftentimes this was incredibly difficult hot and muscular work even as it was skilled um i'm going uh, one of the, the 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 big things that the 19th century made that was cool was called sheet glass it was a a a really really big straight a uh, 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 clear glass that that was made from inferior sands that that allowed window glass to to really uh, uh, spread uh, uh, and be much more common. And to make glass, you know, it, it's difficult, and it was a, a, a something that machines couldn't do. So here is how a person made sheet glass. The workman takes up on the one end of his iron tube, a large mass of glass, and whirls it about in an extraordinary way. He swings it round in a vertical circle, blows into it, swings it again, rolls it, until at length it protrudes beyond the end of the tube as a cylinder, perhaps four feet long by ten inches in diameter. This cylinder is easily opened at the two ends and attached from the tube. A hot Iron wire severs it in a line from end to end, and the cylinder, by careful heating and running, opens out into a square sheet, flat but slightly wrinkled on the surface. So here you have you know, men in big, hot uh, uh, glass working places, taking gigantic, you know, lumps of molten glass and swinging it around and blowing into it until it turns into kind of like a a long balloon. And then they cut it and hammer it out. They, They made tons of glass in this way. And so it was skilled, it was muscular, it was hot, and it was often difficult. Now, in talking about craft labor, we also have our own biases. We, we, we have the kinds of labor that we like to highlight. Um, it tends to be the kind of labor that's, that's cool, um, that's done by men, that's muscular or skilled or sweaty or, or, or just remarkable. But when we think of handicraft labor, we, we really need to think about domestic labor as well. It was not just men lifting big metal things but women lifting babies that made the 19th century work. We've talked about it on this podcast before, so I don't want to belabor it, but women's labor was central to the functioning of the domestic economy in the long 18th and long 19th century. People needed women to work at home to do everything from cooking food, to cleaning clothes, to taking care of babies, to making houses clean, to traveling. Women's labor was central, and it was not mechanized. You know, maybe some kinds of the inputs were. Maybe you got, like, certain kinds of better soap in the 19th century. But by and large, most of the stuff that was being done was being done by, you know, sweaty, Difficult, uh, tedious labor of women. Just take the the, the the act of cleaning clothes, which we take for granted because we have washing machines. Well, before washing machines in the nineteenth century, to clean a, a shirt, you first needed to boil a bunch of water. Well, first you needed to get the water, which was difficult. Water is heavy. It you know if you don't have an indoor tap, you have to go to a well or something to get it. That's annoying enough. Then you have to heat it using, say, coal which doesn't take a short amount of time, then once you heated it in, in likely a small room and it got all misty, you have to put soap in it. And soap back then was not the nice kind of soap that we have today that you can just rinse on your hands. No, it was caustic, made from lye. It only really worked if the water was boiling out so you have boiling lye, it was, it was. Then you have to reach in there and you actually have to work the clothes yourself with your hands. It was difficult or or with some implement. It was difficult work. So we can't forget the women. Um, I'm taking care of a baby right now. And even now in, in, in 2020, um, it is a difficult thing to keep a small baby alive and requires a lot of what we might think of of handicraft labor. Uh, you know, back then you needed to make diapers uh, and change them. And it, it's hard. So, let's move on from from handicraft labor to uh, white-collar labor. The 19th century also saw the expansion of a particular kind of worker who we now know of as the professionals. It's a really vague category, and if you read about professional workers in an academic context, you're gonna read a lot of of people wringing their hands over what on earth a professional actually is. There's kind of a I kind of an I know it when I see it quality to a professional. The, the the characteristics are that professionals are groups of workers that work primarily with their minds. They rely on large investments of education to do a particular kind of specialized work that usually can't be managed, um, which is instead uh, controlled by uh, professional societies, qualifications, jargon, journals, and, and expertise. You know the big difference between professionals and, and non professionals is is, is twofold. First, that professional work is often um, or or always uh, gatekept by some sort of entity. You have to get a qualification. You have to pass an exam. You have to uh, go to, to X number of years of schooling at particular schools. The other really key point in professional labor is that it can't be managed well. And so you rely on the professional's discretion um, and their own image of themselves as a professional to get the job done. You can't really manage a doctor the way that you can manage a factory worker. And so to have an organization of doctors, which, you know, works efficiently, you have to trust that the doctors themselves see them, see, see some part of their daily duties as 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 important to them. It's not just work, it is a profession, a calling, something that expresses who you are. Now, when we get to actual professions, it's 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 a bit clearer. The old professions were you know relatively straightforward. They, they were the clergy, the law, and sometimes particular doctors, but not others. But over the 19th century, the number of professions increased dramatically. Um, if you're a professional, it's really likely that your profession started sometime in the 19th century. There, uh, I, I did some research for my class on this, and we're uh, reading um, primary sources from the first uh, uh, astronomical professional society, the first aeronautical professional society, the first psychiatric professional society, the first geological professional society. Um, almost everything that could have a professional society got a professional society in the 19th century. And in the process of creating these societies and these institutions, it determined the outlines of the fields themselves a profession like dentist and doctor and optician optom optometrist the, the outlines between those three jobs is not clearly delineated it's it's not something that we can just take for granted in fact the actual precise borders between those three professions have you know were, were, were drawn as part of a process of institutional jockeying between these different professional uh, bodies. Uh, if you listen to um, the uh, medical history show Sawbones, they have a great episode on why dentists are not doctors. And the long story short, it was because of a a, a a a a a battle between two professional societies. And so, what do we make of this? What do we make of the growth in professional labor? I mean. In, in part, there's this old story of the modern age as being more differentiated. There's, you know, we have a bigger world, and, and so that lets people have more diverse and specialized kinds of labor. And I think that's true. Um, but it also says something about the nature of work, because professional work is really different. It's a new kind of work. It, it requires kind of a shift in how you see yourself. To be a professional takes a ton of investment and part of that investment is in not just learning the kinds of things that you need to 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 learn to be a highly skilled professional it's in learning how to you know internalize that when you go to med school you don't just learn about disease you learn about what it is to be a doctor. You hang out with other doctors. You, you know, you think about doctoring 24 seven. You, you, you think of being a doctor as the big end all and be all of your life. And you get particular kinds of professional norms. You in some way identify yourself with your profession. I am, you know, in year eight or something of my long professional education, and I can tell you, a lot of it is not just in getting skills of being a historian, of you know, reading primary sources, of teaching, of communicating to the public, of writing arcane dissertation chapters, but it's also like, and I don't think that anybody wants this, but it happens, it's also an identification of my life story with this profession. I've spent eight years trying to get this PhD, and that means that like a good third of my adult life. Um, the big story of it has been being a historian, and that's something relatively new. I mean, it's not completely new, but it's new that it happens at such scale and with such diversity. Well, that's it. I, I hear my baby crying, so I should go off and uh, do some tedious. Uh, handicraft labor to make sure that she doesn't die. Uh, this has been Making of Historian. Um, if you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, thank you if you've shared us on social media or done other nice things with us on the internet. Um, I have to thank, as always, Duncan Barton, who made our image, and Jonathan Lear, who made our music. Um, next week, we will be back uh, talking about the history of The weekend. Um, I certainly need one myself. Uh, Hope that you get one soon as well. Goodbye.